Let's open our Bibles, though, to the book of Esther, chapter 9. Esther, chapter 9. We are finishing this book today, this book of Esther. We will be going all the way through the end of the book. And then next week, we'll start in a little five-week mini-series uh, on what are called the doctrines of grace. And those are, those are our, our specific doctrines of the church that pertain to God's sovereignty and salvation. So we're going to do a, a little five-week on that, and then I believe we'll be moving right into the book of James from there. So you have a little idea of what lies ahead for us. But now, as you are able, let's stand together one more time in honor of the word of the Lord. We don't do this out of empty ritual. We do this as a tangible, physical reminder of where authority lies, and that is with the Word of God. We are picking up in verse 20, where we left off last week, and we will be going through the, as we said, the end of the book of Esther today. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and also the 15th day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness and from mourning into a holiday. They should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts for the poor. So the Jews accepted what they had started to do and what Mordecai had written to them. For Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them, had cast pur, that is, cast lots, to crush and destroy them. But when it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his sons should be hanged on the gallows. Therefore they called these days Purim, after the term Pur. Therefore, because of all that is written in this letter and of what they had faced in this matter and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year, that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation and every clan, province, and city. These days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And Queen Esther, the daughter of Abihail, and Mordecai the Jew gave full written authority, confirming this second letter about Purim. Letters were sent to all the Jews, to the 127 provinces of the kingdom of Ahasuerus, in words of peace and truth, that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther obligated them, and as they had obligated themselves and their offspring with regard to their fasts and their lamenting. The command of Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea, and all the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews and popular with the multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure 
and perfect gift that you have given to us. Thank you, Lord, that by your spirit working through your word, you give light to our understanding. You give sight to our blind eyes. You give hearing to our deaf ears. You've caused even our dead hearts to live. And so we pray, God, that for those who don't know you, you would do all of these things. That you would cause them to live, even as your word is proclaimed today. Pray for your people, Lord, that we would be transformed more into the likeness of our Savior by your Spirit's working through your word. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, my whole life since I was a little kid, one of my favorite places on earth has been Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. One of these places that like when the fifth or sixth graders took the trip there when I was that age and they went to Gettysburg in Washington, D.C. and they came back and I was like, how was it? Did you love it? And they're like, didn't love it. It was boring. Um, that's because kids are dumb. <laughs> I've probably been there 20 times or more in my lifetime. I don't know what the count would be, but I was just captivated. I must have hit it at just the right age. The, the memorials... The monuments all across that great battlefield, I just was captivated by them. Our family loved historical places. We traveled extensively growing up in ministry, and we were always going to historical places, and I just loved them. I still do. There's something about just going somewhere and going, this is the spot. This is where it happened. This is, this is where history happened. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm still a sucker for a good monument for a good memorial. When people started tearing them down across the country a couple years ago, it's something in me hurt deeply just to see them coming down. It is good to remember. It's, it's right to remember. It's good to build monuments. It's good to have memorials. It's good to set days aside, to rejoice and to remember. Tomorrow we have such a day, Labor Day. Perhaps not... Not any of our most exciting holiday. A day to honor workers, originally because of labor unions. What it's really turned into is what? It's a great weekend to barbecue if the weather's right. It's a constant yearly reminder that the time for wearing white pants has stopped. Uh, that's Labor Day. October 31st, we're going to celebrate a much more important holiday. Reformation Day. We celebrate this revolution of the Protestant Reformation. The church celebrates Reformation Day for over 500 years now to rejoice in what God has done and so that we'll never go back to how things used to be. And then from there, we'll move into Thanksgiving, originally a time set aside to be remembered by the governor of Massachusetts to give thanks to God for his providence for his preservation of the colonists in the new world. And then from there, we move right into the Christmas season as we celebrate together the incarnation of Christ. All that it means that the second person of the triune Godhead took on flesh, lived a life in our place, died a death in our place. Monuments and special days are for the purpose of remembering they, they help us give our past its due significance. And because of that, they're supposed to provide for us a better perspective on how to live in the present and of where we're headed in the future. That's what they're meant to do anyway. 
And throughout the Bible, the people of God are called to this. They're called to remembering. They're called even to put specific things in place to help them remember so that they will not go back, so that they will not forget. And Esther 9 and 10, as we read this, really the whole book of Esther, it's all about that. It's all about remembering, the importance of remembering what God has done. And that's what we see being established, that permanent remembrance in this passage that we are looking at today as we conclude this book. Look again at verse 20. Mordecai recorded these things, sent letters to all the Jews who were in the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar and the 15th day of the same year by year as days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. It's a month that had been turned from them from sorrow to gladness, from mourning into holiday, that they would make of them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food and and to one another and gifts for the poor. So it's, we're establishing this day in light of all that God has done here. It's, it's Christmas and Thanksgiving all rolled into one and we are obliging the people. You will celebrate this. We as a people will celebrate this in perpetuity, year by year, forever. What are the things they're remembering? Verse 24, Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them. They had cast pur, that is lots, to crush and destroy them. When it came before the king, he gave orders in writing that his evil plan that he had devised against the Jews should return on his own head, that he and his son should be hanged on the gallows. This is what we're celebrating. This is what we're going to remember year after year, setting two days aside each year. That when the destruction looked like the fate of God's people, when it looked like we were doomed and there was no help, that it ended up being our liberation. And so they named this festival, verse 26 tells us, Purim. After the word pur, or the casting of lots, it's, 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 a great, it's a great sarcastic sneer in the face of the gods of Persia. We are, going to, we are going to cast lots to determine the days on which the Jew will be killed. And so they cast lots, they consult their gods and let the gods decide. And then on that day, they are slaughtered wholesale when they rise up against the God of Israel's people. It is a festival that celebrates the providence of God. That's what it's all about. It's a festival that celebrates when they determined today the day to kill us. It wasn't two weeks out. It was 11 months out. And we had time to prepare. And we had time to train. And God had time to work in all these little details to prepare his people to be spared. And we've seen and we've highlighted God's working. Behind the scenes, providentially, in every detail of the book of Esther, even in Haman's evil actions. And his actions were evil, and we need to remind ourselves yet one more time that God didn't force him to do those things. Haman did what Haman wanted to do. Every character in this story has done exactly what they wanted to do every step of the way, and yet... At the end of the story, we discover this, that God has been orchestrating everything. Even in the casting of lots, and even in the, in the naming of this entire celebration after the casting of lots, it, it calls our mind to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. 
Every time the dice are rolled, it is God who determines the outcome. And so everything that happens, even every roll of the dice, is under the sovereign control of God. By the way, the next five weeks when we are studying the doctrines of grace, that's what they're all about. It's the sovereignty of God. Even as it extends into salvation. So then as we've been studying the book of Esther together, we have discovered that that the fate of God's people was not resting on the roll of the dice. It was not up to random chance. God's people were, were, were not bobbing about in this ocean of chance and just things happen to us and there's nothing that can be done about it. They weren't held in the grip of some blind and deterministic forces either. Their fate was not held in the hands of the most powerful people in the entire world, of this Persian empire that dominated the whole world, of King Ahasuerus, who we know as King Xerxes, as in, in the hands of Haman, his second in command. Now what we find is the people of God were under the direct providential care of the one who not only made all things, but is working all things together. He's working all of the events of life together. As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 2, according to the eternal counsel of his own will, where he is bringing all things in in heaven and on earth under the authority and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we see as we look at this, the totality of this story of Esther. And so, not just in Esther, but every event in history, every discovery of science, every political election, Every dramatic moment of our own lives ultimately will serve the purpose that before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess his lordship. And and so this, this feast of Purim... It's a celebration of all that. It's a celebration of the providence of God. And this feast is established so the people won't forget that. It's established to remind them of that. This is the pattern for God's people throughout the Old Testament. We sang about it this morning in one of those great hymns of the church. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here by thy great help I've come. I can remember as a kid, like, I love, I love Scrooge as well. And it's neat that we're singing about him this morning. But I don't understand. I'm not making the connections. We, by the way, we're not singing about Scrooge when we sing those words. I remember once in a, in a, in a former church, we, someone requested that we change the words of this song. Nobody knows what Ebenezer means. So sing, here I raise my cup to thee, Lord. And I was like, no, you weirdo. This concept is beautiful. This is great. They didn't get the words wrong. In 1 Samuel 7, the Philistines have attacked God's people and God fights for them. The text says he thundered against the Philistines. And Israel utterly defeats the Philistines. And Samuel sets up a stone and he calls it Ebenezer, stone of help. Because God has been our help. And every time they see that stone... It's a tangible reminder of God's help and protection. It's something they can see with their eyes. It's something they can touch with their hands. It's something they can point their children to and go right here. You know why this is here? Because God fought for us. Because we are his people. Because he has never abandoned us. Because we belong to him. Because our God triumphs over all other gods. Because every knee will bow before our God. 
Joshua does something similar when he makes a stone monument and he says, when you bring your kids here and when future generations come and they bring their children, you will tell them here what God did for us. Without those stones, there'd be no remembrance. Without those stones, there'd be no tangible thing to point your children to and even to remind yourself when you see them. That's why we have monuments, by the way. They are tangible reminders. Right here on this spot, this is what happened. Purim is is instituted to commemorate and to celebrate, it tells us in verse 22, the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. It's the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into holiday. This is not a celebration of the killing. This is not a feast where we get together and we eat lots of food and we drink good wine and we give gifts and we revel in all the bloodshed. It is a celebration, it says, of relief from our enemies. Again, nobody's killed here in all the killing. And we talked about the thousands upon thousands, 75,000 people in one day across the empire killed. But it was the people who were God's enemies. It was the people who were attacking the Jews. This wasn't random bloodshed. It's a celebration of relief from our enemies who sought to kill us. It's, it's about deliverance. It is about our sorrow being turned into gladness. And so verse 23 tells us the Jews accepted what they had started to do, what Mordecai had written to them. In other words, the Jews did this spontaneously the first time. The day's fighting occurred. They had relief from their enemies. And it, the response was rejoicing and celebration. Verse 27, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them. Without fail, they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year. So they firmly obligated themselves. This spontaneous, worshipful celebration that had occurred when God delivered them and turned the tables and they were freed from the threat of their enemy, they now firmly obligate themselves to keep this memorial going. They didn't say when, he, when Mordecai and Esther sent word out that they should keep these two days and they should obligate themselves to do it. They didn't say, we'll think about it. We might do it. If we're in the mood, we will do it. No, they said, we are doing it. We will obligate ourselves. That's the nature of obligation. It is a duty. You must do it. In our day, duty and obligation is almost like a dirty word. In our culture. I wouldn't want to make you feel obligated. I still do that all the time. I, we need help with something and I talk to someone. I'm like, no pressure whatsoever. Don't worry about it. Because I still have this remnant of being a Mennonite in me from when I was a kid. And I'm afraid to ask anybody to do anything. Lest I impose upon them. But the truth is, I've often wanted people to feel obligated in my life. I want my wife to feel obligated to be faithful to me. I would like her to feel that that's her duty and that she must. That she's not free to not be faithful to me. When, we, when our kids were younger and we were raising them, I wanted our kids to feel obligated to my parental authority. It wasn't going to be up to them whether they would or would not obey the instruction of their parents. Why is that? Well, it's because the obligation that comes with these relationships is first and foremost an obligation to God. 
That's what we see going on here too. The Jews recognize God has provided them deliverance. And obligation is not the same thing as legalism. That's one of the the claims of our modern church world is that any kind of sense of duty or obligation is simply falling into legalism. But it's just not true. When I obligate myself to my wife, when I say I will never let myself get into a compromising position with another woman, you will never have to worry about me because I will never let myself be in a position where I would where I would betray my duty and my obligation to you. She doesn't look at me and go, I'm deeply concerned about the level of legalism I'm hearing from you right now. Of course not. It's an expression of my love. It's an expression of my commitment to her and beyond that, my commitment to God. Yet so many Christians won't make any commitments to God or his people because they are afraid of legalism. They are afraid that that's being religious or whatever label we want to put on it. But not these people. These people obligated themselves. They obligated themselves and not just themselves, their offspring. We're obligating, I'm not just speaking for me. I'm speaking for my offspring and for the future generation. Our culture won't let even parents obligate their own offspring to anything. We can't make choices for them. They are fully equipped at age seven to decide life's most important and colossal decisions. Now, if we want to make the choice for our children to murder them before they're born, we can make that choice. We can, cho- we can choose for them that they don't get to live. But, but, but if, if we want to make the choice about whether little Bobby becomes little Jennifer, no, we don't get that. Parents don't get to do that for their children. That's insane. This world is insane. We all know people who have bought into that insanity, don't we? We're all touched by it. Should we talk about more practical matters? Like parents deciding whether, letting their teenagers decide whether they come to church or not. I wouldn't want to force them. Let me just tell you, I've been in pastoral ministry a long time. I've seen where that road ends. And it is not where you want your child. These Jews obligated themselves. They obligated their children. They even obligated, it says, all who joined them. If you remember back to the end of chapter 8, when, when Mordecai's edict went out across the empire that the Jews could defend themselves, a lot of people decided, I would also like to be a Jew. Fear of the Jews fell on the people. Well, the Jews obligated them too now. You're one of us, so you're doing this. Our willingness or unwillingness to obligate those who are within our own sphere of authority, it speaks to them about the things that are actually important to us, about the things that are vital to us. When a parent says to their child, I'm not going to force them to go to church, it might make them start thinking weird thoughts about the church, let me just tell you, you've communicated to them what you think, what you think about how important it is, what you think about what matters. I'm not going to expect them to live like a Christian. The older they get when they're teenagers, we've got some rules in our house. But no, you are telling them what you think matters when you do that. Notice how comprehensive this obligation is. Verse 28, that in these days should be remembered and kept through every generation, in every clan, 
province, and city, that these days of Purim should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. That is quite a commitment. Every single one of us, for every generation, for eternity onward, that's how great this deliverance was. They were destined to be destroyed, completely annihilated. And so every person, for every generation, forever, they have obligated to commemorate and to celebrate and to recognize this feast of Purim. And that is exactly what they did. Such that when the Nazis were in power and the places that they were in power, because they understood the power of this story, because they understood what Purim represented, in Nazi prison camps, if you had a copy of the book of Esther, it meant your immediate execution. You could not have the book of Esther in your possession. This book that a lot of Christians are like, well, it's kind of a nice story, but who cares? No, it was execution if you had a copy of this book immediately. And and so many Jews who had this book memorized, they would come together and they would craft their own copy of it. Because in this story was hope. In this story was was a God who who they knew would not abandon them. Purim is still celebrated by all the Jews. Two and a half thousand years later. Why is that? It's because of Esther 9. It's because of Esther chapter 9, what we just read today. That's why they still celebrate this. And this, I think, should should turn our minds to the gospel, which is a much greater story than Esther, which is just a dim shadow. It should motivate. It should inform our dedication to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, we must hold the line in our day. We must instill it in our children intentionally, consistently, aggressively even. We must uphold it in our generation and from generation to generation. So that a thousand years from now, should the Lord tarry, there will be those who will look back and say it was because of my father. It was because of my grandfather. It was because of my great, 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 great grandfather. That's why I'm walking with the Lord today. So they will say to their children, as they look at, at, at the Ebenezer that is your picture, in whatever form pictures look like in that day, and they'll say, right here, it's because of this guy. Th- this is the reason. Because we held the line in our day. Because you were obligated when the world around you said you don't need to be obligated to anything. When the Christian culture around you said you don't need to be obligated to anything. You can do your own thing. Whatever feels right. However the Spirit's leading you. Because the world says it's, it's all about right now. Live for this moment. Christians, we must, in response to that, say no, it is not. It is not all about the moment. It is about God. It is about God. And it is about what God has done. As preserved for us in stories like Esther. It is about what God has done in the past giving significance to now. It is about now having a place in the future. We are not called to think like the rest of the world. What does scripture tell us? A wise man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. That's the message of the scripture to us. 
We're going to think generationally. Verses 29 through 32, Esther makes it available. We're not going to reread that for the sake of time. Or she makes it official. She, she, she ratifies that this is what we're going to do. Verse 32, the command of Queen Esther confirmed these practices of Purim, and it was recorded in writing. Then we come to the final word. The final word in the book of Esther. Let's just read it together again. In chapter 10, verse 1, King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the land and on the coastlands of the sea. All the acts of his power and might and the full account of the high honor of Mordecai to which the king advanced him, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia? For Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Ahasuerus. He was great among the Jews, popular with a multitude of his brothers. For he sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. So we have this weird turn. We go into this extended thing about the feast... And then we read King Ahasuerus imposed a tax on the lands and on the coastlands and the sea. In other words, here's what it means for King Ahasuerus. Things just went back to normal. Things just went back to normal for him. All this dramatic action that's happened in the book, all this intervening of God that's gone on. There's been no change in him. There's been no change in his heart. There's been no conversion. There's been no revival. We know from history that this king, King Xerxes, just continued throughout the end of his life to build his harem bigger and bigger and bigger. More and more and more women. More and more and more opulence. Just continued to build his wealth and his palace. He lived a life of selfish ambition and wickedness until he finally was murdered by one of his eunuchs in his own bedroom. That's how his story went. Probably just a few years after this story took place. And here's the reality. Just like this king, just like King Ahasuerus, we can read the story of Esther. We can see how things ended up for Mordecai and for Esther and for the Jews that, that their enemy Haman was conquered, that the, the Jews killed their foes, that Mordecai has now been elevated to second in command over the whole Persian Empire. We can see these things and we can say, that's good enough. We can be satisfied with that. The king was. Things went well for you. Well, back to life. Back to normal life. We can do that, and we can miss the whole point of the story. Xerxes missed the whole point of the story, and he lived in it. The Jews missed the whole point of this story to this day, and they still celebrate with gusto Purim. It is a drunken festival. It is the highlight of the calendar, and they read this story every year with much enthusiasm and fanfare and Funny behavior, things like making noise every time Haman's name is said to drown his name out and all of these things. Well, they've missed the point. Even as they've celebrated for two and a half thousand years, many churches teach this book and miss the point. Certainly any movie that's ever been made of it misses the point entirely. The focus is all on here at the end celebrating. It's all on Purim. It's all on Esther. It's all on Mordecai. And they fail to see the story actually ends up right where it began. Remember how the story began? This story bookends itself. 
with Ahasuerus doing exactly what Ahasuerus wants to do. Celebrating himself. Now, of course, at the end of this story, some good things have happened. The story doesn't conclude with the drunken orgy that the story begins with. That's a positive. Esther and Mordecai, for their part, have been transformed. That's very good. God's people have been delivered. Haman has been cast down. All of these things are very good and we rejoice. God has worked mightily in this story. His providential hand was seen from the start to the finish. And yet, as Christians who know the whole story, it shouldn't leave us satisfied as we come to the end of this. It should leave us longing for more. It should leave us longing for a better king and a better kingdom. For a king who is righteous and who is just and holy and wise. And for a people who look like their king. We should hunger and thirst for something so much better than we get in this Persian empire and those who live in it. The final words of the book are this. Mordecai sought the welfare of his people and spoke peace to all his people. That is great. That is great. But Mordecai is not leading them into true and lasting peace. Mordecai is not the one that the prophets have spoken about. He's not the one we've been waiting for since Genesis chapter 3, where that first promise, that first gospel comes in the garden from the mouth of God, spoken to the serpent, saying that the seed of the woman will crush his head. Mordecai is not that guy. He's not the one Isaiah speaks of in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there shall be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Friends, we need this king. We need that kingdom. That's the savior that we need. How easy it is for us to settle for two days of celebration instead. For us to settle for some association with earthly honor. To to settle for some superficial peace that's here today and gone tomorrow. To settle for trusting in wealth, which is fading away. But all that's good in this story, and by the time we come to the end, there's much good. All that's good is just the faintest of shadows of the true good. God's not mentioned in this story, as we've said many times. That's because he was largely forgotten in those days by the people who are involved in this story. Those who remained in the Persian cities, those like Mordecai, those like Esther, They trusted in a pagan society for their salvation, as many do today. As we look around and see how things are going with our nation, that's how we think things are going with all of God's universe. That's how we think things are progressing in the plan of God. We look to them. We trust in them. We look to the culture around us and we think if we could only live in such a way as to not draw their angry attention. Just have them like us. These Jews thought they'd be better under the, uh, under the pagan rule, 
of a pagan empire than under the direct theocratic rule of the God of Israel. And apart from God's work in us, we're just like them. We're just like the Jews. We're just like Esther and Mordecai, giving no thought to God, living as practical atheists, living for ourselves. We're even just like Haman, as we've seen, at war with God and him at war with us. As as we look at the cross of Christ, it tells us something about what we deserve, about what justice looks like. As we see Christ crucified, we know that we deserve nothing more than to be hung on a tree. Just like Haman was hung 75 feet into the air and executed in front of all. That's, our, that, that's what we deserve. That's justice for us. God hates sin. God is personally angry with sinners. And that is every single person who's ever born onto this earth. That is their biggest problem. It's not where they're born. It's not what, what social status they're born into. It's not their ethnicity. It is not, it is not how wealthy or poor their family is. Their biggest problem is this. God hates sin and will judge it. So as this story ends, we realize just how desperately we need a real Savior. How desperately we need peace with God forever. How desperately we need the Lord, not just to to providentially redeem his people from behind the scenes, but we need God to do something among us. And how blessed we are to possess the gospel of Jesus Christ, where we're told exactly what God did. That's what he did. He did something among us. So what makes the gospel so sweet It's one thing to say that God hates sin and even hates sinners. And boy, does the world hate that. It's another thing entirely to say that God sent his son for those he hates. For those that hate him. That he makes them his friends. That he makes them his beloved sons and daughters. But by by pouring out his wrath towards sin, which is real and infinite. By pouring out his wrath towards our sin on the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead who who willingly took on flesh. Who willingly went to the cross in our place. Drinking that infinite cup of God's wrath dry. Only God could do this. No man could do this. To the extent that there's not one drip, there's not one drop, there is not not one tiniest bit of moisture left in that cup of wrath, Christian, for you. There's none. How glorious is that? Jesus Christ, God's only son, gave himself up for sinners. His death on Calvary's cross was propitiatory. It turned God's wrath away from us. It diverted the wrath of God that was, that, it was, that, that was falling on us hard. And he took it upon himself. And it moved this righteous God to be gracious towards us. God's holy, just, and good wrath that was against us was poured out on his son so that he might be just. 
in justifying the ungodly. In this great exchange for all who put their faith in Jesus. Our sins were counted against him. His righteousness was put into our account instead of our guilt. Oh, Christian, what, what better news could we have than that? What better hope could we have? What better Savior? But you need to know this. God's wrath is just. God's wrath is holy. God's wrath is certain. It must fall. God's wrath must fall. Either on the sinners or on the Lord Jesus Christ, our substitute. There is no third way. There is no other option. There's no provision for sincerity. This is the glory of God's promise. Romans chapter 8 verse 1. For all who are in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation. That's it. That's our hope. If we've trusted in Christ, there is no longer any condemnation or death for us. Only justification. Only eternal life. Only Christ's own infinite reward. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Since we've been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by God's wrath through him? May God help us to rejoice in this salvation. This, by the way, is a true and better memorial than Purim was. As we gather together on the Lord's day each week, on the first day, on the day of the resurrection, and we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, and we remember. May God help us to rejoice in this great salvation. It is right that we rejoice in this great salvation. For those who haven't humbled themselves before him, for those who continue by your sin to rebel against this gracious God, you need to know this. You are an object of the holy wrath of God. You will not escape it. You will not argue your way out of it. You will not pile up good deeds enough to ever account for this. Turn to him. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Ask God to grant you authentic repentance and saving faith. Ask him to help you turn from your sin, to hate your sin, to forsake your sin. And to come to him. Ask him to cause you to trust. To trust and to, to give all of yourself to the Lord Jesus Christ. Who suffered God's wrath for every believer. If you'll do that, you, you will come into this precious hope. You will come into this glorious salvation. If you ask God to do these things, God will do them. He's no respecter of persons. You've not gone too far. If you come to him... He will have you. And he will do these things. What a glorious Savior. And as we have now studied this book of Esther and all the strange things that go on and frankly the, the sin that prevails in so much of this book, we lift our eyes to the Savior. And we find in him hope and life and a promise of lasting peace and blessing. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your word. 
Thank you, Lord, for your kindness and mercy to us in Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. May we never take it lightly. May we never cease to be amazed. I pray for those, Lord, that hear my voice now that don't know you, that they would not scorn your grace. They would not scorn the mercy extended to them. Even now in this moment, as the gospel has been proclaimed in their hearing, it is your kindness to them that they might turn from their sin and their rebellion against you and that they might come to you and find in you grace and salvation and life and freedom. Pray, God, that you would do by your spirit what only you can do by your spirit, and that is cause dead hearts to live. Pray, God, that you would do this for your glory. Pray, God, will you do these things for the eternal joy of your people. We pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful ambassadors, heralding your great victory throughout all of history and in the cross of Christ and his death and resurrection and his rule over all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.